Well, here we are, my fellow World War II enthusiasts. You've listened to me butcher names, places, and even accents for the last 99 episodes, but hopefully not the facts, or at least not too many of them. I've said this before, so I'll keep it short. I did not, could not, imagine what this podcast would become. I had no idea what I was doing, which is probably a good thing. Otherwise, I would have been too terrified to record the first episode. And by the way, I went back and listened to the first episode. And well, thanks for sticking around and actually listening to episode two. I think I got better over time, somewhat. I still get nervous when I bring up GarageBand and put the mic in front of me. But I'm getting there. Even after all this time, I think I'm still getting there. Thanks to all of you who have listened and wrote in saying, your time spent doing chores or walking or mostly commuting to work have been shortened by my little endeavor here. Trust me, I know what it's like. When I'm listening to something I can get into before I know it, I'm home and can't quite remember how I got there. If I could go back, I would do some things differently. But as they say, it is what it is. And I pray it's been acceptable. Hopefully you agree. But I have to acknowledge after going back and listening to myself, it must have been so frustrating for you when I put out the Fall of France series or the Battle of Britain series, one episode at a time. Because when I go back now and listen, and I can listen to them straight through, it's actually interesting and delightful. You really get a sense of what was happening, how and why those parts of the story turned out the way they did. But having to wait for each episode and then remember what happened last time, well... I know that was frustrating. Anyway, 100 times, I've sat down, stared at this microphone, tried to remember to slow down, and then got all excited anyway and forgot what I was supposed to remember. Sorry about that. Again, thank you for writing in, for the comments, and for helping me along the way. My life has been so enriched by this experience, by talking to many of you, the stories you have shared with me, about your families during the war. It was those, more than anything else, that has brought depth and color to my understanding of this momentous event. And thank you to all my fellow podcasters out there for sharing your knowledge and time with me. Again, now I have a whole other circle of interesting people from all over the world that I can call friend. And as events play out now in the Ukraine and the Crimea, I'm reminded how humans haven't changed all that much. But just like then, we will all have to see how this plays out. And looking back at the tragedy and destruction of World War II, I hope this time that peace, goodwill, diplomacy, common sense, but also a certain amount of moral strength and fortitude applied early on will be the dominating factors in this hopefully current short story. My thanks also to the members of the podcast, people who have donated, which has made the wife happy, so I could devote so much time to this. It really is a labor of love, and I could still, to this day, do it all day long, if allowed. Thanks to all those who have bought coffee mugs and ordered CDs for friends and family, and for those of you who have been with me since the beginning of June 2010. Thank you. Just thank you. 
I still have my first email from a listener, my first praising comment, and my first non-constructive feedback response as well. Yes, I keep them all. I've been to Rome, but I haven't made it to anywhere else in Europe yet. I'm hoping that will change with the tour. We'll see. Which compels me to say this. Please check out geeknationtours.com if you're interested in going. The price has come down a bit. We've made some changes. And I know it's short notice. And if it doesn't work out this year, I'll get over there someday. Honestly, I'm not really sure what's expected of me for a 100th celebration episode. I put out on Facebook and Twitter that I might just do a normal episode, but was surprised by the responses that basically said, hey man, this is your 100th time doing this, live a little. So, this is my attempt. If you haven't listened to Laszlo Montgomery's 100th episode on his China History podcast, you should. Basically, he and I got together and talked about many things podcasting. So, I'll let that stand for me, as far as some of our common podcasting experiences. Highs, as well as lows. You know, I think it's starting to hit me as I record this, 100 episodes. Sure, there have been many others who've done this, and many more episodes besides. But all of you who wrote in were right. This is something that should be acknowledged. Thank you for helping me see the light. And I'll just end here by saying to every single one of you who listened to me tell the story that I had no part of as I have learned along the way, and that was the whole point, thank you for letting me be a part of your life. Time is the greatest gift we can give to someone. If there is a moral to be learned from a podcast, it's probably this. I started this after frantically searching for a World War II podcast was crushed when I didn't find one, waited for years, and then decided, what the hell? How hard can it be? Yeah, it was hard as hell, but I'm glad I did it, and there are yet so many stories to be told. I hope to hear some of you on my iPod telling me a story in the future. Just start off with your own tech guru. Don't make it so bad some guy named Paul from Scotland has to write you and say, you seem to be having some trouble there, mate. Need some help? And this is the participatory part of the 100th episode. If anybody wants to write me and let me know yes or no or to what degree, I sound like Kevin Costner. I've gotten four emails in the last week. I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but please feel free to weigh in. So that's it for me. Again, just thank you everyone who is uh, taking this ride with me. It really is a pleasure to do this for you. The following is a conversation I had with a man named Henry Niemann, who was born in Germany and lived through the Nazi years, and then World War II, first in the Hitler Youth, and then as a very young soldier. It was my pleasure to talk to this man, and I hope you enjoy his series of stories as much as I did. So, for my 100th episode, I thought it fitting to bring you the story of the war from the perspective of someone who was there. 
And hello, listeners. Um, this is Ray from Central Virginia. Finally, as promised, my 100th episode. Um, so I hope you like it. I'm trying to do something a little different here as opposed to uh, we'll get back to Churchill. We'll get back to the storyline as soon as as soon as I can. But today I want you to uh, bring a guest on, someone who can share their experiences with us. And his name is Henry Neiman. Am I saying that right, Henry? That's correct. Okay, excellent. Thank you. So, um, Henry, you were born and raised in Germany, correct? Yes, sir. And um, so what, maybe what were some of your – I know that you've, you've spoken to a lot of groups and you've shared your experiences with a lot of different people throughout the United States. United States. Um, maybe what were some of the um, first things that you remember um, in Germany after the Nazis took over, if it was the Hitler Youth or whatever early experiences would you like to share with us? Uh, what I remember is when I was about four or five years old, we lived in an apartment building about on the fourth floor, and uh, on down on the streets, the Nazis were marching with flares, and on the other side of the street, there were also higher uh, apartment buildings, and uh, there some, well, the communists and some uh, dem- democratic. Uh, uh, Line they were shooting down onto the Nazis, that, that, and then my parents they just grabbed us away from the windows. Anyway, that's the first uh, memory I really have regarding the Third Reich. That's amazing. So that's when they they were, I guess, struggling to see who would uh, take over as the Weimar Republic was crumbling or disintegrating. They were fighting in the streets for control, and, and I guess what y'all just had to keep your head down until. It was over and hope no one in your family got hurt or your friends. Yep, that's right. <clears throat> okay, so you, um, is there, I was going to ask you about the Hitler Youth. I think you were a part of that. Is there anything before that that you would like to share with us? Uh, well, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back uh, to the First World War. Yes, sir, absolutely. And, and uh, my grandfather received uh, the the Iron Cross fighting in the, in France, mm-hmm. and I have it here with the papers, and uh, uh, he got killed, and I also have two little uh, diary. Uh, what do you call it? Diaries. Diaries. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's from him, uh, which he wrote down. Of course, it's German every day, and. Uh, that's uh, then in the 1920s, Germany went through a great depression and uh, inflation, and I have all kinds of money. If it would be worth something, I have millions and billions, and uh, I have, uh, I can show pictures for that and explain how it was. Uh, if you work for any company, you got paid in the morning, and then uh, the workers were given a time off so they can buy their groceries or whatever they needed mm-hmm. because the evening the money was worthless. Wow. <clears throat> That's amazing. So they just had to hurry up and use it up before it was, what, nothing more than paper, I guess. Yes, that's right. That is absolutely amazing. Yeah, if you could send me pictures of um, the, stuff, the stuff from your – I think you said your father – that's my grandfather. Grandfather, I'm sorry. If you could send me, uh, send me after we're finished here. If you could send me some pictures, I'll put it on the website. That would be that would be terrific. Okay. Well, when I was when I was ten years old, 
uh, at that time, every boy and every girl had to join the Hitler Youth Organization. Mm -hmm. And uh, if Mama and Papa were against it, uh, they better keep their mouth shut because they would be in trouble. Right. And... Uh, so, so what were some of your experiences? Because when that first started, was it mostly about, um, I guess, trying to get back to a simpler youth, you know, um, joy through exercise and joy through strength? And, and I guess they were also giving you, imparting to the ideals of the Nazi party? Or what were some of your experiences like in the Hitler Youth? <laughs> well, I really loved it. Because mm -hmm. any boy who went to the Scouts, I think, really enjoyed being in the Scouts. Sure. And that's the way we felt. We marched, we sang, we had a lot of sports, mm -hmm. and uh, we uh, had uh, to learn how to fold our blankets and canvas and put it around the backpack perfectly. We had to set up tents, and we went overnight trips. And uh, so that, that's uh, the way it began uh, when I was 10, 11 years old. That's, and uh, how long were you in the uh, Hitler Youth? Until I was drafted into the uh, army. Okay. So, yeah, so it's amazing because at the time you're just a, a young, maybe even naive boy, but you're just having fun with all these experiences. And I yes. guess in your comrades and things like that. Yes, that's right. Okay. And, and so when, when were you drafted? Well, that, that is jumping a little bit too oh, far. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Please continue. It's all right. Uh, the war began in September 39, mm -hmm. and uh, th things changed drastically right then. Right. And, uh, and then 1940, 41, the bombing starts going, uh, falling down, and uh, my dad and I, we were watching outside. And I tell you, if you want to re really see uh, fireworks mm -hmm. with excitement, then you look up in the sky and see maybe hundreds of spotlights trying to find the airplanes right. and the anti-aircraft shooting at them. And sometimes you see one exploding up there or catching fire or hitting, get, getting hit. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but then, you know, we, one thing we didn't think of was what goes up has to come down. Ah. And that is the shrapnel from the anti-aircraft. And I have a piece here. And those things come down sometimes red hot. Wow. And so my dad and I, we had a steel helmet on, and we thought we were really, we really brave in it. But we ran real fast to the aerojet. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you did. Yeah. I, I, yeah, because most people don't think about it's got to come back down sometime. And if you shoot straight up. It's That's gonna, right. Yeah. Wow. We had, we had no experience, you know. Right. That must have been tremendous. I mean, I can I can only imagine the noise, the volume that well, that would go when, on. The planes came always at nighttime at the beginning, mm -hmm. and hardly ever during the daytime. And uh, uh, you can hear the engines roaring up in the sky. And when they dropped their bombs at the beginning of the war, there always were four bombs, and you could really can tell uh, when the bombs came closer to our house where we lived, and uh, we just uh, ducked down, and sometimes uh, the whole house was shaking. Right. 
My mother, she was shaking so bad, she out of control. She could not, uh, we could not help her at all. Right. And then the lights went out. Anyway, that's... So how, how long would uh, power be out? Would they be out for days, or were they pretty good about... Rest- well, it was mostly every night. Wow, okay. But then the, the, the school and Hitler Youth had a program to send the children away from the big cities. Mm-hmm. We got a notice in the school that my parents had to uh, send us to the train station, be prepared to stay for as long as uh, a year or two. And uh, we did not know where we went. The parents didn't know where we went. Wow. We just uh, had to be there. And my sister was in the, on the same train but uh, on a totally different uh, area and into camps. And uh, I was sent to uh, close to Passau, that was way down in South Germany. Mm-hmm. We were in a camp there, and uh, uh, we had outhouses which were adjacent to the house, to the building. We were in a room with 63 boys. We had no locker we lived out of a suitcase and uh, in the morning the first thing was uh, getting dressed and standing outside raising the flag mm-hmm. singing the anthem the hitler used a hitler uh, third reich anthem and uh, raise our hand and see higher 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 you know and right we uh, we were military school. That's uh, about what it was. And then we had to walk about 10 minutes to get our breakfast and back home. Then we had school till noon. Mm-hmm. And after, after school, we back we, on the street. We marched again to get our lunch. And after that, we had two hours rest. And then we had to have Hitler Youth service. And that means either sports or marching or uh, how to learn uh, the uh, or when Hitler was born and his whole life and so forth. Right. Uh, then uh, in the afternoon, in the late evening, then we ate again. We had to march to the restaurant again. And then was uh, time to uh, hit the sack in the morning, the same thing all over. That's now. After a year, I got sent home to Hamburg to my parents, and I stayed a few months there, and I got another notice that I had to go to another camp, and that was by Nuremberg. Mm-hmm. Nuremberg, that city is quite popular because that's where they had the lawsuits against the Nazis. Right. And, uh, I was there, and that was a wonderful place. It was uh, in a monastery, in a cloister, and nuns took care uh, in many ways of us. They cooked for us, and but the military service and duty and training always was the same, but more uh, strict. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I got after one year, I got sent home again for, for just a short while, a month or two, and I got another notice to get uh, get out of Hamburg. And then I was sent to Yugoslavia that was occupied by the Germans at that time. Right. And 
that was a wonderful experience because every boy was divided to one family. Now, in Yugoslavia at that, at that time, there were complete towns, 3,000, 5,000, only German. Uh, we, we called them Volksgermans mm -hmm. and went out of Germany a long time ago uh, from the Black Forest area and they settled down. A lot of them went to Russia and uh, but the, they, the German people from they stayed in uh, uh, Yugoslavia and uh, that was a wonderful experience. But again, school and military service afterwards and uh, that there I was, oh, I don't know for how many months, and then high officials came from the Hitler Youth. They uh, uh, asked for four volunteers, mm -hmm. and since I really loved the discipline and marching and singing and songs, and I mean, I just uh, it was just up my style. Mm -hmm. And so I raised my hand. I didn't know what for. I was volunteering, but uh, we were put on the train and sent to Budapest. And Budapest are two sections. Buda is on the hill, and Pest is downtown. Beautiful city. Right. And uh, that was a Hitler Youth Officer School. Now, that experience was tough. Right. I mean, really tough. Mm -hmm. uh, we had to do all-day Hitler Youth service, and uh, we were trained to approach uh, an area without being seen, and we were graded by it. And uh, then we were, <laughs> one evening, the officer said, uh, good night, Kameraden, and he turned off the light, opened the door, and uh, closed the door, and we all thought he was outside. Well, he was still standing inside. And one guy said, oh, I'm so sore. And what? You're still talking? Oh, God. Ten, two minutes outside in complete uniform and, and formation. So we out of the bed and everybody put the uniform on. And can you imagine 56 boys going running through the one door oh, and God. make it? I mean, that's impossible. Right. What? You cannot make it? In two minutes, you're out in uniform, uh, in sports uniform, and two mattresses on your back. The, every bed had two mattresses, the part, top part and the lower part. And, well, it never worked. I mean, we couldn't do it. And then, we were standing there with two mattresses on, on our back, over our head. And then they said, turn, forward march, up the hill, sing a song. Another time we had to... Uh, put 10 rocks in our backpack and uh, the rocks were not small because they were all sorted out already from the group which was ahead of us there and uh, then they said uh, in Rhein, one row right face and then we had to spot, swat down all the way and put our hand on the heel of the man and in front of you mm -hmm. Now, you have to remember, we had the backpack with the 10 rocks in front of us. Right. Then they said, and forward march and sing a song uphill. And it was, you try it sometimes. <laughs> I don't think I could. I just had a, a talk in La Sierra University, and uh, there were 
uh, some guys which came back from uh, Afghanistan, mm-hmm. tough guys. And I said, okay, you guys, you come forward now. And uh, I told them what they had to do. Right. They couldn't do it. And then another thing they taught us right away from the time I was 10, 11 years old, uh, and that was uh, you squat down all the way on, and put one, foot, one leg forward and uh, keep your balance and then come up 10 times on each leg. Wow. You try to do that. I asked one guy who was a, a master scout or whatever you call that, mm-hmm. I told him, okay, you go down now. I say, I would do it, but I can't do it anymore. I had four back surgeries. I got rods and steel in my back. Right. And I'm five years old, so I can't do it. The last time I did it was when I was 40 years, and that was the last time. And uh, I popped the disc by doing it. So mm-hmm. That's amazing. But uh, you couldn't even move. I mean, but try it sometimes. Right. Uh, on one leg, you have to put your heel down and the foot flat on the on the on the floor, and then hold your balance. Okay, you have to put your arms out or whatever, and uh, one one leg straight forward, and then uh, ten times on each leg. If you can do it, I pay you hundred dollars. <laughs> I wish I could earn that money, but I think those days are over. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Well, from there, from there we were, well, there we, in, at that camp, mm-hmm. we trained with uh, uh, hand grenades, how, well, how to handle hand grenades, mm-hmm. rifles, we had to take the locks apart in the dark and put them back together, and uh, target shooting, and uh, the pursuka, right. we, we call it Panzerfaust, we, and I was 14 and a half there at that time. Wow. Uh, well, after that training, uh, that was a f- several months, and then I got sent back to the same place in Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. But I was in charge of about 63 boys, which were sent from the uh, area close to River Rhine, that is uh, the Ruhrgebiet. And uh, whoever speaks German knows where it is, from Essen. And they were, those boys were 11 years old, 
And I was in charge since I had gone through the officer's training and uh, uh, we had to start all over again to teach those young guys. Wow. And, uh, and then after a while I got sent home and uh, I was home four months and I got my draft notice. How old were you? I was 15. Okay. Wow. 15. In fact, I'm born in October, and I got my draft notice in December. And I was sent. I had to report to a boot camp, which was located very close to the Danish border, way up north Germany. Mm -hmm. And in winter, we had no winter clothing. We had no cap or whatever, just a small cap. Right. We had no gloves. We had no socks. They gave us uh, rags for uh, cut in uh, squares and put our feet on our and folded a certain way and you just put your foot into the German army boots and I think everybody knows what they look like. Right. And uh, then we, they trained us there. And uh, <laughs> first we got trained with uh, uh, Norwegian rifles. Mm -hmm. And very special because with those things you could shoot, shoot around the corner. They were so <laughs> inaccurate. It was wow. <laughs> and they uh, were trained like boot camp, like uh, anybody knows how boot camp. But uh, now that area where I was uh, was way up, up north on the on the one side, the Baltic Sea. Mm -hmm. And then about 60, 80 kilometers, or maybe 100, I don't know exactly. And on the, on the other side was the North Sea, where the wind was blowing there. I, I tell you, we had to stand in attention and, uh, in one line, and we had to lean forward because of the strong wind. Wow. We had to stand there, and no gloves. It was ice cold, snow on the ground, and our middle finger had to be exactly on the seam on your pants, and then your fingers had to be straight. Well, if you were in cold weather for a long time, mm -hmm. try to straighten out your fingers. There's no way that you can. Right. And the fingers, the hands were uh, coiled up, and uh, then they said, you what, you can't do it. And then we had to uh, run. And then the, the uh, uh, what is it? The order came, mm -hmm. uh, that means uh, lay down anywhere. I mean, uh, and then up and down. And we had to uh, walk, I don't know how far. And with the uh, backpack and the rifle and the... Uh, well, we were trained there like an American boot camp, I would say. Mm -hmm. And then I caught a terrible cold, and I was spitting blood and what have you, and they put me into a uh, little uh, hospital, which was located on the uh, same location. Mm -hmm. And uh, one morning, very early, about 3, 4 o'clock, I hear the sound that was... Uh, uh, the hospital was close to the entrance of the fort, of the, yeah, of the army fort. Right. And, uh, then I hear the sound of crunch, 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 like army boots marching on gravel. Mm -hmm. All the boys I went to school with and I was drafted with, and uh, they all went out 
uh, into combat, sent to combat and to Berlin. They were put in boxcars with straw, mm -hmm. and uh, they, they made it to Berlin, and there are lots of boys I have never seen anymore, and uh, maybe three, four I have seen after four or five years. Right. And they were in prison of war in, in Russia, and uh, way down. That's amazing. So the fact that you were sick, you had to stay behind while they yeah. went off. God was good to me, I tell you that. Yes, absolutely. Wow, that is amazing. Then a bunch of us came in, and uh, they were trained, and then we were sent out also to Berlin, but we didn't make it. The Canadians they had advanced with their tanks quite a ways, and uh, they intercepted the train, and we were playing around in the same area, but for 10 days, and I don't really like to go into details of the combat because we lost a lot of boys sure the, the fun stops when right. you go when you go into come the fun starts up to that point it is fun and uh, you don't know anything about it but uh, when you have to pull the trigger and you see some uh, boys you know for for a long time get killed uh, then I, I don't like to repeat those things. Of course, I totally understand. What um, roughly what time? Where, where where are we at in the timeline uh, when the, when you have to go? We are at beginning of May in '45 already. Okay, all right. And, uh, it was still cold, and uh, but uh, they, we had. They first of all, I like to say they drafted into the army from fifteen. To 70. If you're 70 years old, they still drafted the men wow. because there was nobody left. Right. And uh, anyway, so uh, I we had an old colonel. He was redrafted. Mm -hmm. we, we called him Opa. That means grandpa. And uh, he was good to us. I mean, he the boys which were left were called together, and he says, boys, we lost the war. And uh, I do something for you guys, uh, which is illegal. It can cost my head, mm -hmm. but anyway. And he wrote us out a little paper for each boy, name, rank, and serial number, and released out of the outfit with uh, weapons in full uniform for regrouping because the German army was totally scattered. And, I mean, you have, you have no idea what a beaten army looks like when they retreat. Mm -hmm. and, uh, anyway, so we, <laughs> we got that paper, and he says, boys, try to make it home. If you don't make it home and you get caught, you will be in prison of war at least for a year and a half or two years. Well, he must have known what he was talking about. So seven boys, including myself, started walking every day just a few kilometers mm -hmm. because we had to uh, walk or, uh, in, in such a way that we would not be seen. But uh, I tell you, thousands of German soldiers hung with ammunition and wounded, carrying one to the other. They came uh, from the place where we want to go, and they said, where are you going? We are going home. 
you are crazy. The British are right there. We said, we don't care. We throw our stuff away. We go home. Right. Well, of course, we were young kids. I was 16. By that time, uh, no, not quite. It was 15 and a half. Mm -hmm. uh, so we uh, started walking, and uh, we made it to one point, and there the first... Uh, the first, uh, well, first of all, there was an intersection, and we were caught with our pants down. There was the SS right. motorcycle and the, the sidecar with the machine gun mounted on it. And I guess that anybody who has seen war movies from that, they will recognize that. And uh, But we had to take care of the problem, and we kept on walking. Mm-hmm. And then we came to the area where the uh, British uh, tanks came in. There was a jeep first, and there was an author, English officer came out, and uh, he spoke some broken German, and uh, he said, uh, you have to stay on the side of the road, and uh, you have to wait the, until everything is passed, and tank after tank after tank, and they had their fun. They came, well, those uh, German uh, country roads are very narrow compared to ours. Mm -hmm. uh, they came and then uh, they turned right at us, you know, in the last moment they straightened out again and they threw us uh, some, uh, or canister, smoke canister, I don't know what you call those things. Right. But they threw some at us, you know, and <laughs> yeah. But uh, we waited for two and a half hours, trucks and guns and um, uh, soldiers coming by, but nobody was walking. They were all sitting on trucks mm. by, and then uh, we had the last behind the group was another Jeep type of vehicle, and then they said, you can walk on now. So we walked on, and we made it home in the evening, and approached Hamburg on one side, on the north side. And, uh, of course, Hamburg was declared as an open city. That means they do not fight anymore. Right. And uh, so, but we had curfew there. Nobody was supposed to be out on the street. But there were some buildings, apartment buildings and uh, uh big buildings anyway. The people were standing outside on the street and they saw us boys walking there and they said, why don't you stay overnight here and uh, tomorrow morning you can walk on. I said, no, I walked so my blood, my feet were bloody mm -hmm. and I <laughs> but you, you ignore it, I tell you. And so I kept on walking. I had to cross Hamburg complete through the city and uh, I saw everywhere in parks, tanks and uh, trucks and cannons uh, uh, parked. Mm -hmm. And so I walked around and nobody bothered me except for one guy jumped out of the bushes and called me German Schwein. And uh, he wanted to <laughs> take care of me. Mm -hmm. I was not a soldier. That was one of the uh, maybe Polish people who were forced to work in our uh, factories. Well, right. They were visiting with the British now. Mm -hmm. But then uh, a staff sergeant, I remember the 
big angle on his sleeves. He came out and uh, he said, leave him alone and go. You know, so he mentioned it for me to walk on, so I did. And then I had to cross one bridge. That is the Lombardsbrücke. That means Lombard Bridge, mm-hmm. which is the center of the, uh, of the city. We have a large lake, the Alster, and uh, the bridge divides the small part and the large part, but you had to cross that. Otherwise, it's a big detour I had to make, and I wanted to make it home as quick as I could. So I was right in the middle of the bridge, and there comes a jeep with spotlights, and uh, because we had curfew, we were, I wasn't supposed to be there. Right. Uh, but I didn't want to get caught either, so I jumped over the side and hang on until the jeep was gone, and then I kept on walking. Wow. Hamburg is a port city, and it has so many canals and bridges, just like Venice. Mm-hmm. Anyway, on the way home, my dad, he was the general manager of a large food factory, and I have pictures of that too. Mm-hmm. Burned out for, to 70% and received a bomb and had 16 times bomb damage. They baked uh, about 30,000 breads a day and did the iron ration for the army. You call it K ration. Mm-hmm. They made cornflakes and uh, like Kellogg. Right. And, all that stuff, you know, margarine and all that stuff. Anyway, my parents lived in that food factory. They re- rebuilt part of it so they could live in it. My parents were bombed out three times. Wow. The last bridge I had to cross over a canal, they were on the other side. There were two British soldiers walking. They had a good time. They were a little bit uh, happy. They had something to drink, I guess. Right. But they saw me, and they came across the street with their rifle, ready to protect themselves. And uh, then, uh, of course, I didn't speak English, mm-hmm. but I could see my my uh, the food factory. And I say, my, my dad, I have to explain something. Mm-hmm. My grandmother was uh, born and raised in England, and my grandfather moved to England before the First World War. So uh, and then he had to come back to for some inheritance. And the First World War broke out, and he was drafted, but he didn't make it. Right. The, coming back to that bridge, so they uh, one one on one side, one on the other side, uh, guided me home. And uh, we came onto the courtyard, and I whistled, our family whistled, and my sister heard it. I could whistle louder then. Right. <laughs> she heard it, and Henry is home. And uh, so they come running down. They lived in the third floor. And uh, so my dad, he spoke to the two British soldiers. My dad had a, my dad had a complete... A British accent or dialect, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. He talked to them and invited him up into the house, to the uh, living quarters, and uh, he visited. On those soldiers, they came home. Uh, came to visit three, four times after that, and uh, they said, "Well, we wished we were home too." Oh. 
uh, anyway, that's uh, the that's the way I got home. It's and amazing. The uniform was alive, I tell you, full of lies. Mm-hmm. And I had to burn my uniform. I couldn't. <laughs> right. And uh, But I made it home two days before the war was officially over. That is ama- that's an amazing story, Henry. Thank you very much. Uh, so so um, do you have any um, stories about what happened after that? Or, um... uh, yeah, my, my parents, uh, my grandparents and parents, and we were Seventh-day Adventists. Mm-hmm. Even this Sabbath, this Saturday Sabbath. And uh, we went to church. We had actually before the war, we had seven churches. Now we had only one. Right. It was destroyed. Hamburg was destroyed, I would say, 70%, 80%. And I have some pictures, a few pictures from, the, uh, uh, from uh, newspaper clippings mm-hmm. from time, and uh, you can make pictures of that. And uh, anyway, so uh, I learned the, uh, the trade uh, business. And I was, uh, the system in Germany is uh, totally different, or it was at least at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to be a mechanic or a carpenter, you find yourself a company which accepts you as a, uh, what do you call it, learning? Uh, like an apprentice? Apprentice, yes. Mm-hmm. And the company is required to teach you everything what they do in three years. And you start out booming the floor, and then more and more. And while I was in the office, I learned business, typewriting, mm-hmm. and shorthand, and bookkeeping, and uh, shipping, and receiving, and uh, delivering, and so forth. I was in, uh, uh, hired as a, a printership uh, in a small firm which handled uh, all kind of cookies and chocolate, and but that was pretty good. Of course, there wasn't much around at that time. Right. Marmalade and uh, stuff like that. And uh, everything was on rations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rations were actually better during the war because I guess Germany took whatever they wanted from all the countries they occupied. Right. The war, 46 to 48, I have some little things here. We make some pictures of it. The daily rations of food that we had. And you can see it's not enough to live, but it's more to die. Right. Yeah. The black market was flourishing, wonderful. I was involved in it, and boy, I tell you, I made money. <laughs> You could buy hardly, practically everything on the black market. Wow. The German Reichsmark was changed into military money. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you had to prove where you got it. So I lost 30,000 Reichsmark at that time, which is $30,000. Uh, wow. Uh, well, I couldn't prove where I got it. <laughs> right. Uh, and I had a friend of mine. He says, oh, come, let's go. We had a bicycle. And let's go out to the farmers and trade uh, something for potatoes. So I had American cigarettes. We didn't smoke. So um, I had a lot of cigarettes. 
and my my buddy he had uh, uh, booze, mm-hmm. and so we went out outside of Hamburg to the farmers and tried to uh, exchange this stuff for potatoes. So we got a, each of us had a sack of potato, put it over the handlebar, and we went home. On the way home, there were two guys on the bridge. And you know you could find uh, rifles or ammunition or anything. You could find anything any, anywhere. Right. I mean, it was scattered all over. And there were, again, people who were forced to work during the war for the German uh, factories. Mm-hmm. Each one of them had a rifle, and they, they stopped us. And my buddy, he was a strong, big boy. And uh, he was uh, in the army. He was in special forces, so he was well trained. Right. And uh, he said, he walked a little close to them, and he said, come on, let let us go. You know, you know, we, we, we are hungry. We need the food. And he, uh, he went into action so quick and uh, took one rifle away from one guy and knocked the other guy over with it and uh, not took care of the first guy. And he says, okay, let's go. <laughs> wow. You got to keep the potatoes. Yeah, um, <laughs> shaking in my boots. I mean, you know. <laughs> I would be too. He was uh, he was a tough guy. Oh man! Right. And, wow. So, uh, potato soul. <laughs> Good for you. And then later on, uh, in '46, we had our first young people meeting in a small town, where my uh, I met my wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a group of about six, seven hundred people, and uh, out in the countryside. And those uh, people from that town, they went to the farmers and they they uh, cooked a nice soup for us all, and uh, that was uh, wonderful. So uh, my family sang in a quartet all over Germany for, uh, for all these meetings. Mm-hmm. Church got uh, reorganized at that time, and. Uh, Anyway, so my I got uh, acquainted with my wife, and uh, my dad, he forgot the music, the notes, right. to the next meeting. And that was the best thing that ever happened in my life, because I wrote to my future wife, uh, please send me the notes and the music, because I have to sing in the next meetings, and we need those uh, the music. Mm-hmm. My future mother-in-law, he's told my wife's brother, here, Erwin, you write back because a boy wrote you and you write back. He says, I haven't written a letter in my life and I'm not going to start now. (laughs) So my mother-in-law, later mother-in-law, she asked my wife, Hilda, well, then you write. Okay, she says she wrote. So she sent the notes and music and... uh, after I received it, I wrote back and I said, why don't you send me a picture of you, yourself? Uh-huh. And she wrote back, no way, Jose. You sent, <laughs> you sent me one first and then, well, I sent a picture immediately. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, we were dating for long times. And so then I met a, a woman in Hamburg 
she had a motorcycle for sale. That motorcycle was taken all apart by the by her husband. And the reason for taking it apart was if it would have been together, he would have been drafted with a motorcycle. Ah. You know, she was figuring that he make it home. Well, he got killed during the war. Yeah. So I was trying to sell the bike. And I bought it. I put it together. And I was motorized before the German police in Hamburg was motorized. Right. And uh, I drove every weekend to that small town, Hude, where my wife lived, future wife lived. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, that's uh, quite, was wonderful for me. <laughs> <laughs> love, love conquers all. Yeah. That's, a, that's an absolutely amazing story. When, when did you come to the States, if I can ask? Yeah, that is another story. Okay. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine, first of all, we, we got married mm -hmm. after to each other six years. I was 23 and she was 22. Mm -hmm. And she had birthday on the same day, only one year younger. And when I found out that, then I knew that was my future wife. And uh, anyway, we got married when I was 23 mm -hmm. and uh, lived in Hamburg. I found one small room, 16 square yard. We had to, uh, to cook in it and live in it. In that small apartment, there were three families living with two children because the government said whoever owns the apartment is required to take another family in or two because uh, all the refugees from the east came and they had to live somewhere. So uh, they took your pots and pans and your towels or bed sheets or whatever. They took your dishes uh, they, as if they owned it and uh, you couldn't do a thing about it. Right. Uh, so I, got a, I found a room illegal because I was not, not uh, entitled of one room. Mm -hmm. uh, but we lived there for two and a half years. And uh, then uh, a friend of mine received a care package. Now, you people will never know what a care package would meant to the German people at that time. Because when you see what our daily ration of food was, then you would understand Everybody was hungry. Everybody was skinny. But you know something? They were all pretty healthy. Right. Didn't have all that junk food to eat. Right. And uh, anyway, so my friend received a care package. And the sender was from a farm. He was a farmer, apple and pear orchard. And uh, he put his name and address in it. And uh, so he wrote back, back and forth, current correspondence. And uh, so finally the farmer says, hey, Walter, if you want to come over here, you can work for me on the farm. I have a house for you. You can make $1 an hour. And so they decided to come. They had to wait sometimes until the quota was ready, because at that time they allowed only 10,000 Germans to enter the United States. Mm -hmm. That was in 1953. Wow. 
He sent all kinds of newspaper clippings and magazines and pictures. And then after he was here six months, he bought a used car, a 1950 Mercury with a suicide door. And he sent pic pictures over. When I saw that, I went bananas. <laughs> Is that nice? I wouldn't mind going. I would go away. Well, a friend of mine, uh, I told it to, that lady, she had... Uh, correspondence with my friend, which I did not. Mm -hmm. She mentioned, oh, Henry and Hilda, they wouldn't mind coming if it is that nice. Well, would you believe the next-door neighbor farmer, they, they worked together with their equipment, and he said, oh, man, I would like to have them come and work for me. So I got a letter from my friend, dear Henry and Hilda, if you want to come, you have the chance to come and so forth. You can work here, have a house, and work for a dollar an hour. It took us two seconds to say yes. Wow. We had to go to the consulate in Hamburg and physical and all make all the papers and again to wait just a year to uh, be able to come. And then uh, the people, the, the farmer had to pay for uh, the shipping we, because we didn't have any money. Right. So he paid for the ship, for the ticket, and uh, so we came on the Greek line. I have a picture of the boat we came with, and uh, we came, we left Bremerhaven, and that was one of those converted troop transporters, which were not too big, I tell you that. Mm -hmm. In Bremerhaven, there was one big ship uh, anchored next to us or behind us, and after we entered the, our ship, I was standing on the upper deck, and I looked up to the straight up to the bow to the ship behind us. Then I know we had only a small, little, tiny paddle boat compared to that one. Right. And uh, but it was nice. It was, then we said, "Oh, this is our honeymoon." We didn't have a honeymoon. <laughs> oh, this is great. Right. Well, it was December, and then if you ever know anything about the North Sea in December, it is rough. Wow. Just left at Bremerhaven, and my wife excused herself because she was seasick already. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't see her for nine days. Actually, well, we, I shouldn't say that. Uh, overnight, and the next day, we entered Southampton. And Southampton in England is a port city, and uh, the river was smooth, and boy, she felt great. We played, <laughs> and then we left in the nighttime, and then you didn't see her for the rest of the time until we hit Halifax in Canada. And from Halifax, they went down to New York. Right. Seasick, and our stewardess told my wife, you better shape up and... Because you might go in, in, uh, in uh, what do you call it, when you get into, have to go into the hospital anyway. But anyway. Mm -hmm. So she grabbed herself together, and I was sitting a lot in the, new, in the movie house because I could move, put my leg up against the seat in front and put pressure against my stomach, so I felt pretty good. Right. Wow. And early in the morning, I always rise early in the morning, I walked out to the deck, and there I saw 
New York Harbor, and I saw the statue. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, that's fine. I mean, I'm right there with you. I. It must have been an amazing experience to to see all that and to experience that. I saw the Statue of Liberty. I ran back real quick and got my wife. And by that time, all the people, the immigrants, left yeah. on the were on the left side. And the ship, honestly, it was tipping a little bit left. <laughs> we arrived in New York. And uh, we didn't speak English, not one word. Right. I arranged for a travel agent to meet us there. And we were walking on the pier. And uh, a guy walked past us, Mr. Nyman, Mr. Nyman, Mr. Mm -hmm. Nyman. I didn't know he was calling me. <laughs> My name is Nyman. Oh. Finally, he filled around with our baggage, and I knew he wasn't. He, <laughs> <laughs> so we got through the uh, custom real good, and uh, there was my uncle. He, he was living in New Jersey. He was a minister from our church, mm -hmm. taking care of three churches there, and he took us home for the weekend. For Saturday and uh, Sunday morning, he took us back to New York, and we got on the Greyhound bus uh, from New York to Sacramento, California. Wow. And another story. I bet it. We were very traveling. My wife had a bad cold, and the people, they were so kind. In fact, I made... The first impression, and honestly, I still stand by it. Mm -hmm. The American people are the most friendly, helpful people in the world. And uh, one guy across the aisle, he said, uh, he mentioned, come to, come with me, Ludens, Ludens. Mm -hmm. So I store. I didn't know what Ludens was, so I said Ludens. So he gave me a little box of cough drops. Ah. Helped tremendously, of course. Right. Uh, then we were traveling already, and the first evening, it was for just before Christmas, and uh, I, I play harmonica. Mm -hmm. And uh, I took my harmonica. I, we were sitting on the front seat so we could see better. And um, I took my harmonica out and played Silent Night just softly for my wife and myself. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the guy across the aisle started singing. The people behind me started singing. The whole bus was singing Silent Night. I didn't know you guys know this song. That <laughs> and uh, that was another wonderful experience for us. Right. The guy, he probably could play, he could play the harmonica. And there were some songs I didn't know. And he played... Four or men, at least an hour, and the whole bus was singing. Wow. Uh, Danny Boy and Hope Range and all these songs. I didn't know them, but he played them on the harmonica and the bus people, they were singing. That's incredible. And we rode already a day and a half and one night, and we approached Chicago. Well, my wife says, 
you know, we must be there pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, we had no idea how big this was. And uh, no wonder you guys won the war, man. So we had to change buses to Chicago. And if we would have known that another bus was going about three, four hours later, we would have waited. But we ran to get the bus, uh, which which was ready to go. Mm-hmm. We could just barely made it in, and they started going. Our suitcases were uh, in the other bus, so they didn't make it. Oh wow! And we went through the countryside. Uh, our impression during the daytime was that the farmhouses. I'm sorry to say that, but it's truth. Mm-hmm. They looked like a junkyard. You would never find that in Germany. Oh. It clean and uh, organized and everything, but that's that's what uh, we saw. Yeah. And, uh, at nighttime, we could you could look into the houses, and there were Christmas trees with colored lights. Colored lights on the Christmas tree. That's the first thing we ever saw in our life. It's <laughs> still candles. Uh, so that, that was quite, and then we didn't know what to eat. I, then I went, I, uh, they, they, the bus stopped every two hours. Right. People get off the bus and went into the store or restaurant or whatever, and we stayed put. We didn't want to lose the bus. Right. But one time we went out, we were hungry, and I went into the store, and you could point what you want to. So I bought 10 uh, but these little candy bars. Mm-hmm. One was O. Henry. <clears throat> I thought that must be good. Here's my name. <laughs> so anyway, I bought ten candle uh, candy bars. <laughs> At the bus, my wife said, "Oh, Henry, you spent so much money, and you know we have to make it till we make some uh, earn some money. We have to make it." And, and uh, I said, "This was only fifty cents." Mm-hmm. Five Five cents for one bar. It blew our mind. (laughs) uh, So one time we stopped. uh, It was a uh, husband and wife uh, there, and uh, they were so kind. Mm -hmm. He said, come with me. So I went with me to the restroom, and uh, the lady took my wife. And uh, then we went into the... Uh, asked us to go with them in the restaurant, and that was the cafeteria. Right. It was the only good meal we had on the four days and, you know, three, yeah, four days and three nights. Wow. That was the only good meal we ate. We could point what we had. We had chicken and mashed potatoes and, oh, man, gravy and all. We just tanked that. Right. Then we had a long stop in Salt Lake City, and uh, but we still we watched real close the bus that we don't lose it. Right. <laughs> so we went on. We went into California, and you know Lake Tahoe, Highway 50, the old Highway 50, curvy roads. Mm-hmm. Bus driver was going 70, 80 miles, an hour. <laughs> and my wife got so <laughs> sick. From it. And then there was a big truck ahead of us, and she says, oh, thanks goodness. There's a... 
in front of us. She just said it, and he shifted down into the lower gear and passed the truck up, and on we went to Crocodile. <laughs> I go home. The first paycheck and I can afford it, I go back home. I don't stay. I say, don't worry about it. It will be flat land. We come closer to the coast, and it will be flat land. Sure. Well, that's the way it is in Germany. Right. Here it's different. Yeah. Anyway, when you when we came close to Sacramento, well, it was flat. And I said, see here, see here, it's flat country. Well, we didn't know. <laughs> to Sacramento, and my sp- sponsor, the farmer, and my friend, this family, uh, were there to greet us. But then... We went back into the mountains. Right. Under the curvy roads. <laughs> but then we arrived at the farm and uh, we saw our little house and they had put up a Christmas tree with colored lights. Oh. A big basket in and a broom and everything you would need. A flour and uh, a cereal and bread and butter and everything, some cleaning stuff, and uh, it was just uh, overwhelming. We had a living room there, a small kitchen, a bathroom, two bedrooms, so we we could walk in a circle, and we're singing and praising the Lord for what we found, and that was our first house. Wow. Then Stay in the morning. They waited for us for breakfast. We were so dog tired, and we were a little bit late for breakfast. And uh, after breakfast, they had a big crawler tractor, and uh, he said that my that my sponsor he spoke uh, pretty good German because mm-hmm. he from a German family which was raised in. Uh, uh, North, uh, North Dakota. Right. There are a lot of North Dakotans. You know, they speak a German. That they think they speak Low German, but it's not Low German. It's dialect. Okay. And, uh, but I could understand him well. And uh, then he says, "Well, let's go out in the woods and get some firewood for you." Mm-hmm. So we went with the crawler tractor, and the first English words I learned was "back up." I put the cable around the tree, they pull out the trees, and then the chainsaw cut into pieces. So we brought the wood in for for us to have heating and cooking. Right. So that we could live there. And We lived there for five years. It was wonderful. It was absolutely a wonderful beginning for us. Mm -hmm. Then I I had a driver's truck driver's license in Germany already. And now I don't know how far you want me to go. Mm -hmm. You ask questions, whatever. I don't know. Okay. So 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 you stayed you stayed there for five years, and then did you go into a different type of work? Yeah, I thought I stayed long enough for a dollar an hour. Right. Came for more than a dollar an hour. Yeah. So, so mm-hmm. we moved into uh, down to Stockton, and I uh, worked as a mechanic as on heavy equipment. Right. 
this and the smallest whatever was there farm equipment logging tractors highway construction comp uh, tractors and uh, overhaul diesel engines and I worked there for five years. Wow. I had a chance uh, through a neighbor to have a service station. And uh, that was my childhood dream, actually. And uh, I got into the service station and uh, had that for 20 years. And then we built our own shop. And had that for I don't know how many years. And I retired and my son is still running the shop. We, wow. still, we still have the same phone number since 1964. That's amazing. That's before I was born. <laughs> we, we were here less than 10 years, and I had my own business. And uh, uh, we could have never have done that in Germany. So we were very, very great, grateful that we could live in this great country. Well, hey, now, yeah. Don't, don't ask me. And you don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. Ask me what I think about our country today and what condition and what state we are. Because I will tell the way I feel. Right. If you don't want to hear it, that's fine. Can we edit something in and out here real quick? Sure, no problem. <laughs> There's one point that I'm... I'm um, a very interesting fact to me, you might find very interesting. When Henry was in the, the Hitler Youth, he was, uh, it was mandated that he was present during the launching of the Bismarck. And I thought that was a really interesting fact. Yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, we Hitler Youth, uh, we, had, we were ordered, oh, thousands of them, we, had, we were ordered to the port uh, part, and the, the ship was built by Blomann Foss. And we had to stand there and watch when the uh, Bismarck went into the water. Mm -hmm. And uh, what do you call that? Launching? Launching, or yeah. And that was quite a excitement. We were so proud of it. We were winning the war, man, believe me. Yeah. Everybody believed it. <laughs> Another interesting thing that um, really made me get a feel for Germany at that time was how Henry described how a father wouldn't speak about the government to his own son or his wife or anything. Henry, can you explain that? Well, I, I, well, <laughs> I in the Hitler Youth in Hamburg, I always wanted to play in the band. Mm -hmm. And my dad, he was so against the Hitler Youth, but... Uh, he could not say anything because if I would have mentioned anything at the wrong place, he would have been in concentration camp. Right. Wow. I took, but I took the bugle home with me. And the next Sunday morning, there was a big parade. Thousands of uh, young kids were marching to a, to a special place. And uh, so anyway, I took the bugle home. And then in the evening, I said to my parents, well, I'm tired, I go to bed. Well, that actually never happened before. And my dad was suspicious. Right. <laughs> and my mother, and she, he said, what's wrong with him? Mm -hmm. I took the, the bugle and then a polishing, a bottle of polishing stuff. 
It's Sidol, S-I-D-O-L. I never forget it. I took that thing and I polished that beautiful, beautiful, and that double bottle fell out of my hands. And I thought, man, my dad is not stupid. He hears that. Shoved my bugle into my feather bed real quick and uh, turned off the light. There he comes. He opens the door, he turns on the light. The floor was full white with that Z door. Right. Splashed all over. He says, What are you doing? Uh, uh, I'm, uh, uh, I'm polishing the door handle. <laughs> well, he was so annoyed and so mad. The, he hit me, and he put three German-made wooden uh, coat hanger on my back. Now, if I would have anything mentioned to that, then uh, when uh, I went back to the Hitler Youth, uh, he would have been gone. Right. But I played my bugle. In fact, the, <laughs> the head man, the leader from the from the what do you call it now? I'm getting short memory here from the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, yeah, the conductor, yeah, he wasn't present. So they put me as a conductor. Now, every Sunday morning, my dad, he went to the train station through the forest and got his newspaper. Mm-hmm. We marched. And he saw us marching, but he did not recognize me because he looked for every bugle player. <laughs> right. I was in front with the stick. <laughs> I hit my head as much as I could with my arm, and uh, he didn't see me. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> but later, years later, I confessed. Ah. Okay. Well, he- Henry, that is an amazing story. Um, everything, I mean... Wow, what a! I don't even know what to say at this point, so I'm going to let it stand for itself. I just want to thank you for sharing your experience with us, us with us, and I, you know, I'm sorry you had to go through all that. I'm sorry we had to go through it as well, but uh, I'm glad things turned out very well for you um, and your wife. And um, I think it's great that you got to live the American dream and your dream and, and own your own business and meet such nice people. And um, I just want to thank you. And if you ever want to come on again and share some other stories, um, you have definitely made this um, a very memorable experience for me. And I just want to say thank you very much. You're welcome. You can cut out what you want and keep it. <laughs> I will do very little cutting because, like I said, it was just absolutely amazing. And I want to say thank you to Larry B. for, uh, for, for bringing us together. Larry, thank you very much. You're very welcome. So, so Henry, again, just I want to say thank you for everything, but I, I just want to ask one question. So as far as – because I'm, I've just, I'm just finishing up in, my, in the episodes that I'm doing, the end of World War I, because I'm talking about Churchill's life. Um, I, what, were the, what was the feeling of the people in Germany at the time at the end of World War I? Everybody had lost so many people and, and just kind of curious what the people in Germany felt about the Americans who came into the war late – um, and helped end it. I was just kind of wondering what was what was going through the hearts and minds of the people in Germany at that time. Okay, uh, I don't know that much about uh, after the first World War because yeah. I'm there yet. But <laughs> I can tell only what uh, I was told 
or taught. Sure. The First World War actually was lost from within because Germany collapsed in the country. The German army was still in France and still in Russia when the war ended. Mm-hmm. Just had no support anymore. Then anyway, that's what I was taught. Okay. And uh, I don't know that much about, but it, they had a very, very hard time uh, after the First World War. Right. Uh, after the Second World War, I must say, even even uh, during the time I was in boot camp, our attitude was, let's quit the war with America and, and for England. Mm-hmm. Go with the, with the Americans and ask the Americans to, to go with us against the Russians. Right. That was actually the feeling. Mm-hmm. And after the war, uh, they accepted, as far as I, I know, uh, the American soldiers. And uh, it was just unbelievable. They were so, so kind, and uh, we couldn't believe it. You know, I have to tell you another story. Okay. And that is uh, from my wife. She lived in a small town that their house was the last house in the small town. That was the last engagement war. And uh, in that house upstairs, they had a machine gun nest, the Germans. Mm Mm-hmm. And my wife was up there with the German soldiers and just visiting, you know. And then my wife says, there, the tanks are coming. The tanks are coming. And she ran down into her basement. The the German soldiers shot with their machine gun, but the tanks found out real quick and eliminated that machine gun next and shot into the house. Mm -hmm. And uh, so... Uh, all the family, they were down in the basement, and uh, we, they had one German soldier, wounded soldier in there, and they all thought, they were taught, when they Americans come, we, we all get killed. Right. They, all of a sudden, you hear, they, they heard uh, footsteps in a language they could not understand. They knew that was the enemy mm-hmm. around. They came into the house, down into the basement. They didn't kill the German soldier. They didn't kill anybody. And that house, they made their headquarters for about quite a while, about a month or so. And uh, they had one large room. That's where the soldiers slept. And uh, then they used the, the kitchen. The family stayed down in the basement. And uh, my mother-in-law was uh, allowed to get up, and my father-in-law, you know, they were uh, mingling around with the, that was Canadian soldiers. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the Canadians wanted to eat chickens, so they went to the farmers, whatever, they went to the farmer and got the chicken. Right. Then they had to take it apart and take the inside out. And my mother-in-law was watching them. And then they didn't know what they were doing. (laughs) And they left stuff in what you wouldn't want to eat, (laughs) stuff out what you you would normally eat. Right. 
And uh, my mother-in-law laughed, and she says, nein, 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 das muss das machen. You have to do it differently. And she showed them how to take it apart on the insides and so forth. And then from then on, she had to clean all the chickens, and they got the necks and the wings and what have you. Right. And, it was, and they stayed, the first troop stayed about two weeks. Mm-hmm. And when they left... My wife's family and they, they cried. Wow. They they hugged and uh, wished them well, and uh, that was the feeling. Actually, I would say the German people, as a rule, had with the with the Americans and Canadians were Americans for us. You know, there was no difference. Right. And uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, just coming coming together under these amazing circumstances everybody's just trying to do the best they can and survive i guess well again i just want to say thank you for your time i know it's been um almost an hour and a half but i really do appreciate you sharing these uh these stories with me and with, with all these with all the listeners i really do appreciate it sir to play a song on my harmonica yes please want me to sorry <laughs> no no that's fine no that's a that's a perfect way to end, to end it i'm just gonna leave it because you know it's real and and i just really appreciate that that was very beautiful again larry thank you for for writing me on facebook um i really do appreciate it it's a pleasure thank you and mr henry and it's okay if i call you mr henry uh thank you for thank you for um all of your stories and um Wow, I I have no words, and I just want to thank you very much. Thank you very much. Oh, sorry, just one more thing. Uh, When I first started this podcast, there was a song I wanted to use as the intro music, but I realized I didn't own the rights, and so I didn't go there. So I'm going to play a snippet of it now. I do not in any way, shape, or form own anything, any rights to this song, so please don't sue me. I'm just doing this as a celebration. So this is me going out. On my 100th episode, as always, take care and may the fates play fair.